Welcome to Military Network Radio, where we'll bring dynamic interviews and fresh information about topics affecting your quality of life at each stage of your military service. Join us each week for information of value that improves your outlook, actions, and encourages each member of the family. Serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Everyone serves, and together we make a difference. And now, here's your host, Linda Crater. Good morning. I'm so glad that you've joined us today. We have an excellent show for you today to talk about cannabis. We're going to be talking with Alex Berenson, the author of a brand new book based on science and evidence and research. It's titled, Tell Your Children the Truth About Marijuana, Mental Illness, and Violence. I'll state right up front, this is not a book that chastises or tells you not to use. It simply gives you a background on the truth behind evidence of what usage does to a young teenage brain, how it carries forward into how you behave, how you think, and what can happen if you're predisposed to certain mental health conditions. So I'm so delighted to introduce you today to our author, Alex Berenson. Welcome to our show. Linda, thank you so much for having me on. And and, and I would just add that, you know, by the way, for some of your older, uh, you know, uh, soldiers or officers out there or, or veterans, um, you know, this is important to, to your children. If you have teenage children and you, you know, right. you want to talk to them. Well, and I, I love the, the throwback to the Crosby Stills Nash song. <laughs> well done. Um, yeah, it's also a throwback, by the way, to the original title of the uh, movie Reefer Madness, which believe it or not was oh. originally called Tell Your Children. So I knew that there were going to be people out there who, you know, who weren't going to like this book and were going to want to pretend that the science in it wasn't real. And so in some ways, I just decided, you know what, I'm just going to lean into that and I'm going to and I'm going to roll with it. Well, I think that was a wise choice. I think one of the things and I my intro was a little stumbly because we've had some technical problems today. I apologize for that. But I do know that in many cases, medicine isn't the answer. Cannabis may not be the answer. But in some cases, it might be. So we are not going to give generalizations about anything except the science today. And you have researched this so thoroughly that it is very, very interesting because I think around the country, recreational marijuana is now legal in nine states. Medically, it's available in more. And I think almost all Americans at this point think that it's not so bad. There aren't really any causal connections that are negative with it, sort of like alcohol. And, you know, I I know that they just put a bill in front of Congress recently to further study cannabis use in veterans for chronic pain, for PTSD, and and a number of other things that can go on. But we're going to take a look today. And I, I wonder if we could start first with, because I read the book, I sped read your book, um, because of our time talking today. And please correct me if I get anything wrong in any of the questions I asked you. But I do know that there's a history here of usage and acceptance and that it went negative for a while, then it's positive. And now I would say it's really almost mainstream in terms of people's discussion. First of all, would you agree with that statement? Uh, and second of uh, all, can we go back and talk about that? So, yeah, I- 
I mean, I'd certainly agree with that statement. Uh, you know, more than 90% of the of Americans believe that, that uh, medical marijuana uh, should be approved uh, for doctors to um, authorize. Sometimes the sometimes we say prescribe, but it's not actually right. prescribed because marijuana is not approved by the FDA for any medical condition. Right. And beyond that, about two thirds almost of Americans believe that uh, that cannabis should be legal for recreational use, um, mm-hmm. which you know, which is really what it's used for. It's it's really a, a, a an intoxicant, and you know, like alcohol. Um, and that's to me actually that's a much more reasonable conversation to have because then you're not pretending that this is a medicine. You're talking about it as an intoxicant that has pros and cons, and and that's really the conversation in my mind that we should be having. Yes. Well, let's have that. But let's put this aside for now, this with this statement, if we if we can agree on this, that medical marijuana is a very different statement. And in cases of um, I believe it's bone cancer where there's severe pain or it's palliative care and you have very little time left, that use, I think, has been accepted by almost everyone. Because it doesn't have the dangers that you're talk- going to be talking today about the science in recreational use. Correct or incorrect? Uh, I, I, I wouldn't really uh, agree with that. Um, okay. So so here's the thing about, about marijuana for quote-unquote medical use. Um, as a medicine, there's very, very little evidence that it does much good for many of the conditions that people say that it works for. And that includes PTSD, by the way. It clearly can work as a temporary pain reliever in the same way mm-hmm. probably that alcohol can work, you know, these right. are intoxicants. But if you are, if you have severe pain, uh, either, you know, let's say you have, you're terminally ill with cancer or right. let's say you, let's say you have really terrible chronic pain. Marijuana actually doesn't work effectively for, for most of those people, because those people, unfortunately, a lot, some of them need, need opioids. Opioids are, are true pain relief. They're also addictive and dangerous and and I don't think we should be handing them out to people the way that, you know, in, in this country that we have handed them out in the last right. 20 years. But there's clearly a place for people who have severe intractable pain and need opioids. Cannabis actually is not really a substitute for opioids in most of those cases. And in fact, okay. in 2018, a pretty large study in Australia of 1,500 people were followed for four years. Some of those people used cannabis. Some did not. They all had chronic pain. And what the researchers found was at the end of the four-year period, people who were chronic users of cannabis not only reported having more pain than people who weren't using, but they reported using more opiates. So, so mm. the idea that, that cannabis is some kind of off-ramp or solution to the opioid epidemic, I think, is one of the most dangerous uh, things that the legalization community has done as they've tried to legalize this drug. And, and here's another thing that I think people should think about the United States and Canada are the two countries that have the most cannabis use of any countries in the developed world by far. And okay. we are also the two countries with the worst opioid epidemics by far. So if cannabis is such a solution to the opioid epidemic, why is it that the two countries that use cannabis the most have the most trouble with opioids? So I, I think the notion that cannabis is a is an effective long-term pain reliever is a, is, is a dangerous one. And I and more broadly, then, if you want to talk about, oh, well, cannabis can treat Alzheimer's disease or cannabis can treat dementia or cannabis can treat irritable Uh, bowel syndrome, all this stuff, there's almost no research showing that it's any good for any of those things. And again, look, alcohol, uh, you know, everybody, everybody, plenty of people drink alcohol. Alcohol uh, lowers your blood pressure. But we don't say alcohol is a medicine. We know why people drink alcohol. They drink it to relax or to get intoxicated. And that's fine. And, but why do we pretend that marijuana is a medicine? And, and people say it's natural. Okay, 
It is natural. Well, almost we don't pretend that garlic is a medicine, by the way. <laughs> Unless you are worried about vampires. There but you go. <laughs> really, almost every medicine is plant-based, mainly from the Amazon. I mean, having worked in the pharmaceutical industry for so long, I mean, okay, but that's not truly an argument. Well, I'm very glad we're putting all these, I'll call them the controversial parts of this, right up front, because I want people to know that we're going to segue right into the science and the history. And there's great politics involved in cannabis use. There's huge money involved, which I think is also a driver. And, it, you know, we, we will touch on all of this because... Let's go back. Let's go back to the drug culture that started all of this. Back to what, the 50s and 60s? Yeah, I, so so cannabis was a pretty marginal drug in the United States until the late 60s. And then, you know, Vietnam happened. And, and I think rightly, right. a lot of people, including people who'd served in the military, got very suspicious of the establishment, very suspicious of this war that we were fighting in, you know, in this country that didn't seem to matter that much to the United States geopolitically. What were we doing? Mm-hmm. And uh, and, there, you know, there were riots on the streets of, uh, you know, Detroit and Los Angeles and many other cities. Martin Luther King was killed. Robert Kennedy Jr. was killed. There was tre- a tremendous suspicion of the establishment. And that even went to the point of the drugs that the establishment used. You know, the drugs that the U.S. used the most were alcohol and cigarettes. And so mm-hmm. cannabis became a counterculture drug. It became a statement. I'm going to go to Woodstock and I'm going to smoke a joint. And, you know, I'm going to I'm going to say to the you know, this I'm not even going to drink the drink that my father drunk because I I am so angry at what's going on in this country. And and so cannabis has occupied this strange place where it's not just the drug. It's a symbol. It's a statement. It's a statement. Yes. Um, And what's interesting about that is if you look at the potency of marijuana that was consumed in the 60s and the 70s, you know, that drug uh, was was often called ditch weed. Right. It, it literally because it literally would grow in ditches. Um, and, so, and so it basically had almost no THC in it. I mean, it was it was 0.5 percent or 1 percent or 2 percent THC at the most. And, mm. and so if you really wanted to get high in the 70s and the 60s, you had to smoke a ton of this stuff or you had to get connected to somebody who was going to get you, you know, a tie stick or Columbia gold or stuff that was somewhat higher potency that you could actually get high on. Otherwise, getting high on cannabis in the in the late 60s and the 70s was like trying to get drunk on low alcohol beer. I mean, you, <laughs> it, it was you could do it. OK, but it right. would work. And so I think a lot of people who grew up then or even grew up into the 80s when the drug still wasn't particularly strong. And they might, you know, you, so so you were at a concert and your friend had a joint and you smoked a couple puffs and it didn't really do anything for you. And so so the fuss about the drug seems sort of silly. But what's being consumed now is a totally different drug, and it's being consumed in a very different way. So even back then, there, you know, the studies show that if you consumed enough, there could be potential mental health consequences. But I think in the last 15 or 20 years, the drug has changed a lot, and the use patterns have changed a lot, and it's become much more dangerous. You know, you're perfectly timing for our break. We have about 30 seconds. And I think you bring up a really... To me, it's a frightening point because we have instances right in my community where it's not just the THC. It's that oftentimes the cannabis is being mixed with other things that are quite deadly. And I think there's a naivete because of the old counterculture 
that you just mentioned that, oh, it's not that harmless. It's really like alcohol. So we're going to go on a short break. We will come back and talk further with Alex Berenson about the truth about marijuana, mental illness, and violence. We'll be right back. Don't go away. We're Military Network Radio, and we'll be right back after these short messages. for a long time that diamonds are precious or worth a lot of due to rumors. That means money. Did you ever wonder how a polished pebble becomes one of the most expensive things on earth? Two centuries ago, diamonds were worn only by royalty. But in 1870, miners discovered huge deposits of diamonds in South Africa. And soon after, the diamond market was flooded. That's when a man named Cecil Rhodes started buying up shares of the diamond mines. 18 years later, Rhodes controlled the entire South African supply of diamonds. He started his own newspaper and magazine articles with clever ad campaigns about cut, clarity, color, and carrot. He also convinced women that they weren't truly engaged to be married without a diamond ring. It's Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. Welcome back to Military Network Radio, serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Together, we make a difference. Welcome back. We're continuing our discussion on cannabis, its use, and some things to be cautioned about because of the science behind it. Right before the break, Alex, I was mentioning the fact that it's very hard to know these days. There are so many strains of marijuana. They vary just like beers do. You can go from low alcohol beer up to a double IPA, just to use as an example. Sure. And you go into these dispensaries where it is legal and people will tell you, you know, what it is you're seeking. But if your comparator is what you perceived marijuana to be years and years ago. How do you know how you're going to react to this? Well, I, I think that's a, that's a great question. Um, and you know, it's not just it's not just uh, like light beer to a double IPA. A lot of people use now they use essentially what is THC extract. So THC uh, is the chemical in uh, marijuana that's responsible for getting you high for the psychoactive effects. And, you know, you can you can smoke it. You can also consume it as an edible product. You can. Right. You can uh, you, you can you can bake it into food. Uh, you know, it can be literally in a gummy bear. And actually, your liver converts that when you eat rather than smoke THC into a form of THC that is even more psychoactive. So I've heard from multiple people. Interesting. Who 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 were not really users who had who took a very small dose of edible THC and had terrible effects. And and I think that that's true, even for people who may, you know, who may be semi regular users of cannabis. They have no idea what what the pure what the you know, what, what if they're smoking a pure THC product, if they're taking an edible, how it's going to affect them. And I think I think this is actually quite quite a bit more common than people realize. Well, so now I would think that people say, well, I don't want to inhale. That's bad for my lungs. We know that any inhalants are, you know, poison to our lungs. So I'll just use THC via an edible. That sounds harmless. It's a chocolate. It's a cookie. Um, 
Well, isn't that contributing then to the understanding that it may be just no big deal? Uh, yes, and that's exactly wrong because again, if you if you're smoking, you actually can it, you know what scientists say is titrate. You can titrate your dose more precisely. Correct. If you if you have an edible, whether it's five milligrams or ten milligrams or in some cases more, you are along for the ride until until your you know your body finally you know clears the THC until your brain is able to uh, you know process what's going on you and this can be hours it can be an hour it can be 6 hours one of the reasons people have so much trouble with edibles is because it, it, these these effects can last a really long time and there's a there's a joke that you take an edible and your reaction is nothing's happening nothing's happening nothing's happening maybe I'll have another nothing's happening take me uh -oh. to the emergency room right uh-oh and that's that's a real thing so so I think, I mean, you know, it's funny because this issue hasn't come up as much as some other issues in other interviews. But I actually think for your audience, you know, which probably includes a lot of young people who are thinking about using or who do use and are thinking about using edibles. This is actually a really important point. You know, people should be careful about this because they can wind up with, in the emergency room. And, and, you know, the doctors may say, OK, you're having a panic attack or you're a little bit paranoid. But probably what's going to get written on their diagnostic uh, chart is cannabis psychosis. And cannabis psychosis is a real diagnosis and a real problem. So if people are listening and thinking, whoa, I didn't know about that, can they? All right, but they're still determined because everybody else they know is using it. And so should I just start small? What does small mean? When you go into a dispensary, I mean, you're not buying a size of coffee. You're, you're buying something that will produce effects for you. So do we need to educate people who, if they're going to use, despite the science that says it's not always a great idea, because there will be people who say that. Sure. Then are there things that you would suggest that someone just starting out thinking this is going to be their answer versus a bag full of pharmaceuticals that they should ask to be informed consumers. Because sure. I don't see a lot about that. I mean, I, I do think that if you go into, you know, if you go into dispensaries in states that are legal, you can get some of these questions answered. And obviously they're going to be answered from a sort of pro-marijuana, what product are you buying today point right. of view. But nonetheless, so you, you can ask, uh, you know, uh, how many milligrams of THC is this? If I'm going to use, let's say, a vape pen, will it allow me to calibrate my dose? And, and some, you know, and some pens do allow you to do that, where you can get precisely two and a half milligrams of THC per per breath. And, um, you know, usually the the for novice users, the what people say is two and a half milligrams of THC is about the equivalent of one drink. So maybe you start with one drink. You can ask for products that have more CBD in them. Mm -hmm. CBD is the main non-intoxicating compound in cannabis, right. and most of the studies show that it kind of dilutes the effects of THC. You know, one of the many problems with, you know, with, with cannabis in its current form is that it's been bred to have a ton of THC and almost no CBD. But you can, if you, you know, if you go to dispensaries and you ask and you say, I'd like a higher CBD product, they can provide that to you. Now, uh, now what's interesting is that most users don't want that. They want to get the to get as high as they can as fast as they can and that's why they like really high THC product that's well, why they and, like yeah and then they can have as little of it as they th want th that's right they, if they're going to inhale they can have a little bit less of it 
but there, you know, there's no free lunch. I mean, that would have been another, another title for the book, right? There's no free lunch. Yes. You can inhale less. So you have less, you know, damage to your lungs potentially, but you also have these other psychiatric problems that are more likely to happen. So you need to, you need to be aware of that. I think hopefully if you're dealing with an ethical, you know, retailer, they're going to talk to you about some of the, some of these issues. I think, unfortunately, a lot of times, uh, they're, they don't. All right, let's talk strictly about symptoms. If someone is smoking and they expected it would make them sleepy, hungry, less pain, etc., but it's not, what are some of the symptoms to have an eye out for that the THC might be too high for your system? Well, if you're if you're starting to get paranoid, um, okay. you know, and especially if that paranoia is is sort of not grounded in reality. So so let's say you're outside and you're you're smoking and you start to get paranoid that a police officer is going to arrest you. OK, that, that that might be sort of a reasonable thing to be worried about if you're in a state where cannabis is not legal. But mm-hmm. but but let's say you're smoking at home and, you know, you've been smoking all day and you start to feel like you're getting messages from the television telling you that, you know, that your neighbors are going to kill you. That that's the kind of paranoia that is dangerous, that you should be very cautious about that. You know, maybe you want to go to the ER, maybe you want to talk to somebody. Obviously, if you start to hear voices, that's a that's a dangerous symptom. If you start to feel very panicky, uh, you know, your heart starts to race, you're, you're, you, you get very cotton mouth and you feel like you can't breathe. Those are dangerous symptoms. And 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 by the way, I would say and, and I think this is a reasonable position to take if you have those symptoms. And certainly if you have them severely enough that you're considering going to the emergency room or you go to the emergency room, it's probably time for you not to use cannabis anymore because those are bad signs. If you are diagnosed with cannabis psychosis, there, there, it's a sign that, you know, this drug is not really I mean, I mean, even one time, even temporarily, it's a sign that th- there's something going on with your mind and this drug that that's not a good thing. Well, I, and, you know, a lot of our audience is composed of family members. And that's why I wanted you to say those things, because I think being seen in the general public as a calming drug, a mellowing drug, etc., they may not connect marijuana use with what you're talking about. So let's talk about this. Not everyone is predisposed to psychotropic illnesses, mental illnesses, um, but we mentioned use of cannabis for PTSD instead of some of the drugs that are given, usually in huge combinations that are interactive and not in a good way. Yeah. So if if you're listening and you see some similarities in these sorts of things, I want our listeners to be able to connect it as a possibility. We're not diagnosing anyone on this show, but we are saying keep an eye out for that. So let's go to the fact that if you have PTSD you may also have a traumatic brain injury. You may also suffer from anxiety. You may, it may be comorbid conditions that are there, which complicates matters in a big way. So talk about how marijuana in those who are predisposed or have mental illness, how it reacts on their brains. Well, so, so the PTSD question is really interesting. There's some there's some slight evidence that, you know, that, 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 that marijuana may help with PTSD. It's not very strong. There's also evidence. There was a pretty good study, uh, I think, out of Yale. Um, this was three or four years ago, showing that people who's P, who had PTSD, their symptoms worsened 
after using cannabis for uh, for an extended period of time. And what's mm -hmm. very interesting is there's a you know there, there was a study published I think last year, and this was about people who used cannabis for anxiety and depression. And this is people who who self-reported using cannabis for anxiety and depression. Mm -hmm. And what they what what they found, and this was very interesting because the point of the study, the study was actually sort of pro-cannabis. It said hey, you know what? I thought this was going to treat my anxiety and depression. And guess what? My anxiety and depression lessened in the short term after I used the drug. Okay. But what the, what the researchers didn't really emphasize was that when you looked at those same people over a one-year period, the people who used the drug the most had worsening baseline levels of anxiety and depression. And so again, there's no free lunch. If you're using this drug, to treat your anxiety rather than trying to, you know, get exercise or focus on whatever problems in your life might be triggering your anxiety, whether that's, you know, problems with your family or problems with your job or, you know, just whatever stressors you have. And I'm not saying that's an easy thing to do, but if you're trying to get a drug to treat these problems in the long run, it looks like there's a rebound effect. And by the way, we know that's true of things like Valium and Ativan. Right. People get addicted to those drugs where, where they, if they're using them for anxiety, they essentially can't stop using them because their anxiety becomes so severe. And I think that that's, there's evidence that that's true of cannabis too. And that rebound effect, it's interesting because having worked in the pharmaceutical industry for so long, 30% of all drugs are refractory or they will not work in everyone. So 30 people out of 100 is not going to work on. Cannabis, I imagine, has something similar in terms of a response, or it sounds like it'll work in the short term or <clears throat> when your system becomes accustomed to it, but that you have to be aware of long-term use. Am I hearing that correctly? We have about a minute and a half left. You, you are. And I, you know, I think, I think we need to think about this the way we think about alcohol. Alcohol, you know, alcohol is a dangerous drug too. It's an intoxicant. And yeah, people use alcohol to cope with anxiety. You know, they, if you're, you know, they, why do people drink it at, at both weddings and funerals, right? Because because alcohol is something that, you know, people can use to celebrate or they can use it to try to deal with terrible stressors in their life. But in the long run, if that's what you're using it for, bad things are likely to happen to you. And I think that is true of cannabis, too. And we just need to recognize that this is not this is not some miracle. It is a it is an intoxicant with side effects. You know, that's perfect timing for our second break. And we will come back and we will talk further about the connections that we've seen in the states that have gone legally, uh, fully legal marijuana and those that are using it for medical marijuana purposes and, and what the plans could be in your mind for tempering this use so that it becomes wisely used and the laws can keep up with the usage because that's another disparate thing that's happening and we're not aware quite of where we should be going and what we should be doing. Stay tuned. We'll be on a break just for a short while. We'll be right back. We're Military Network Radio, and we'll be right back after these short messages. Listen up. Did you know recent studies are suggesting that women with skinny waists but sizable hips are smarter than other women? 
Scientists at the University of Pittsburgh and the University of California gave cognitive tests to a group of 16,000 women and girls of different body types and found the women with the greatest hip-to-waist proportions scored higher. Hmm, I guess that would make me a walking encyclopedia Britannica. No, hold on. That doesn't mean it's okay for us to be a powder pigeon. That's another name for a woman whose sizable hips can take up a whole supermarket aisle. Research suggests that the fat around fuller hips and thighs holds higher levels of omega-3 fatty acids, which helps the brain. I'm not sure if I would rather be able to do the Sunday crossword puzzle or get into those jeans I bought 10 years ago. I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words-you-never-heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. This is Toginet. Cutting Edge Radio. Welcome back to Military Network Radio. Serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Together, we make a difference. Welcome back. I think one of the interesting things that we talk about when we're on break and elsewhere is that cannabis can be... There's a huge placebo effect with new drugs that you're on, especially if you believe that they will work. And then there's also the fact that they may work for a short time if you take a low dose and then when you raise the dose. Again, it's something that is not always known because it is not a medicine. As we've already talked about, it is not a medicine. It is an intoxicant. It is used in many ways recreationally, but also to presumably help with whatever it is that you're taking it for beyond recreation at that point. So let's talk about the fact that the THC is the, the component that causes the intoxication. But let's talk about the fact that people think this is an answer to the opioid crisis. Because I know in the book, the parts that I read very carefully were the fact that that's an easy answer and a, a, a nice thought, but it doesn't appear to have scientific backing. Yes. So so one of the questions that comes up is, is marijuana a gateway drug? And, you know, th- this is sort of a silly argument. Marijuana is a gateway drug. OK, Mo- most people who use who wind up using harder drugs use marijuana first. OK, whether that harder drug is cocaine or heroin or methamphetamine, oftentimes those people are using cannabis first. OK, okay. The, 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 that, that I don't think anybody would argue with that. The argument is why. Okay, so so people who favor legalization of cannabis say, okay, well, the reason this is is because socially, in in a market or in a in a you know in a country where cannabis is illegal, if you want to get it, you go to your friendly local drug dealer, and guess what? That guy might have heroin for you, and he might have cocaine for you, and so let's split it out. Let's make and by the way, that's what the Dutch did in the late seventies. They said, you know what? We think that we think that making marijuana semi-legal is going to is going to solve this problem. Okay. the other argument, the other broad argument is cannabis is addictive and it is a or, you know, for some people and it is intoxicant for almost everyone. And so encouraging people to use an intoxicant is going to encourage them to use other intoxicants and addictive drugs in the future. And so what we don't want is to get people, you know, using marijuana because in the end, they're going to like it, at least in the short term, and they're going to like being high and they're going to and their brains are going to be primed to use other drugs, whether those drugs are, you know, again, whether it's opioids or stimulants or what. But by when we encourage people to use stuff that gets them high, we encourage them to use other stuff that gets them high. 
Now, personally, I think there probably there's some truth in both of those theories. Okay. Okay. Um, but nobody until the last few years ever said, "Hey, let's encourage people to use cannabis because it's going to be make them less likely to use opioids." And the reason they didn't say that was because there was a lot of evidence showing that, for example, people who were heroin addicts who were in methadone treatment mm -hmm. were more likely to start using opioids again if they use cannabis. There's a very good study uh, on, uh, based on a, on a large federal survey showing that if you use cannabis three years later, you are much more likely, I mean like three or four times more likely to use opioids. So, so the reason that this theory has come up, this cannabis can solve the opioid crisis theory, is because of some frankly pretty lousy studies looking at state level data that said, okay, well, Colorado legalized medical marijuana and it seems to have had fewer overdose deaths after that. Okay, okay. The, problem, the problem with the studies is that the states that legalized cannabis first were all in the West, Colorado, Washington, mm -hmm. California, the, the ones that made medical marijuana available. The opioid crisis, as everybody knows, started in places like West Virginia and Ohio. So, right. so if you look at the early years, it looks like there's this correlation. But in the last five or 10 years, obviously, the opioid crisis has become a terrible problem nationally everywhere. And we've had many more states legalize medical marijuana and now recreational marijuana. And guess right. what? If you look at the more recent data, there's no evidence that having medical marijuana legal or recreational marijuana legal actually reduces opioid deaths. So that's that's the problem. So when you look at the state data, it doesn't actually tell you anything anymore. And when you look at the local data, it, the person level data, it shows that people who use are more likely to later use opioids. Which is not what people are seeking or even know that it's a potential danger, which is the reason we're talking about this today. I would also like you to talk about the tie-in with psychosis. We started on it in, I think, the second segment. But the fact is that if people are predisposed, they will tip over a little bit sooner. If they're not predisposed, it will just take a longer amount of time. Doesn't, of course, happen to everyone, but there is more likelihood. And in our veteran population, as you said, going all the way back to the Vietnam era vets, where this was a daily occurrence to continuing through today, that's a very long time. I. I am not going to connect these two thoughts, but I will just throw them out there that the suicide rate in our Vietnam vets is the highest of all era veterans. Yes. So so psychosis, let's talk about psychosis for a, a minute. Psychosis is a terrible affliction to have. Right? Mm -hmm. And so a temporary psychosis, obviously, that's unpleasant. It puts you in the hospital or it can put you in the hospital. It can it can you know be very agitating and unsettling for people. But I'm talking about people who develop permanent psychotic disorders, whether that's called schizophrenia, whether that's called bipolar disorder with psychosis, whether that's called depressive psychosis, these illnesses where you are hearing voices on a regular basis, where you are having hallucinations on a regular basis. And there's another component to this, which is you get depressed, you get apathetic, you can't even get out of bed, the idea of going to work becomes too much for you. These are disabling conditions, okay? Mm -hmm. And fortunately, our brains are pretty hardy. And so it, most people you know, who use cannabis, even if they use it a lot, are not likely to develop these things. Mm -hmm. But there is really strong evidence that use of cannabis in your teens, uh, especially if you use it regularly or heavily, is a contributing factor 
to permanent psychosis in some people. Okay, that some people who would not have gotten schizophrenic become schizophrenic as a result of using cannabis heavily. And that is a terrible thing. Now, now is that because of the youth of the brain? So the, so the brain, you know, in your teens, it, it's undergoing radical changes. Your, right. your, your neural connections are being pruned. And it does seem like the CB1, uh, the cannabinoid system, what's called the endocannabinoid system in the brain, plays mm-hmm. a role in that. And that smoking cannabis may in some way impact that. And so, by the way, it's not just that there are these big studies with epidemiology. We know, and I, and I would guess that some of your uh, listeners are, you know, have had, if not firsthand, secondhand experience with this, that if you smoke K2 or spice, which are, you know, synthetic cannabinoids that were very popular in the military, especially in the Navy, in the aughts, because they didn't show up on toxicology screens, you could yeah. have terrible side effects. And I'm talking about people who had no psychiatric condition. They would become essentially permanently psychotic after using the stuff for a few times. So, so we know that we know that people who have schizophrenia, if they're if they're under control, if they're not having any problems, they are very likely to become psychotic again if they start to use again. And we know that the earlier you develop schizophrenia, the worse your disease outcome is. It's much better to develop it at let's say 28 than at 18. And right. and the more you use cannabis, the earlier you develop. So for all these reasons, there's all this stuff pointing the same way. Cannabis can produce psychosis and it can produce in some unlucky people permanent psychosis. And and that's why, again, I, that doesn't mean that no one should use. OK, we let people we have cigarettes are legal and, right. uh, you know, and they kill hundreds of thousands of Americans a year. Alcohol is legal and people get drunk and drive their cars into trees. But we need to know what the risks are. Well, I have another question for you. Schizophrenia, if diagnosed and medicated properly, can be managed if people stay on their meds. Yes. If they are also augmenting their, quote, care, that's an air quotes, with cannabis, does that increase or decrease their ability to comply with taking their drugs? I mean, most of the time, it, nearly all the time, it is it's a bad idea. You will, you right. will hear people occasionally saying, I, I, you know, I was diagnosed with schizophrenia and I use cannabis and it helps me. The evidence suggests very strongly that that's not true, that people are lying to themselves about that. And the other thing, and this is, you know, the, the, to the extent the book, you know, the books it, 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 it tell your children, right, the, the connection between the truth about marijuana, mental illness and violence. OK, so violence is the, right. the issue that's probably raised the most, uh, you know, controversy in, in the book. The, the fact is that people who have schizophrenia are much, much more likely to commit severe violence mm-hmm. than people who are healthy. And the, and, the, and the worst part of it is if you're taking your medicine, if you're staying in treatment, if you're trying to stay healthy, you don't have that much extra risk of violence. But if you are not taking your antipsychotics and if you're using recreational drugs, your violence risk is off the charts. And so people who, are, who, are, who have schizophrenia when they smoke cannabis, especially if it's early in the course of their disease, they are they 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 commit violence very frequently. And so, All right. yes, I've got a question for you. I, I think that there are probably people listening who are saying, no, I'm not lying to myself. It does help me. I'm able to manage my life pretty well this way. Would that be an indicator that it would be best for you on a non-scientific level to not increase your usage? 
you know, it's funny. I talk, I've talked to a lot of psychiatrists about this and, and people who use cannabis for almost more than any other drug, uh, seem to oftentimes be in denial about its impacts on them. And, you know, one, one psychiatrist, he, he said, he said to me, well, you know, it's an insidious drug. And he said, when I'm dealing with people who are having problems, I don't attack the drug directly because nobody wants to hear it. What I right. say is, okay, let's not talk about cannabis. Let's talk about the fact that you can't get out of bed in the morning. Let's talk about the fact that you're failing school. Let's talk about the fact that, you know, your friends don't talk to you anymore. Can we talk about those issues and, you know, mm. not even what might be driving them. Let's just talk about those issues. So I would just urge people who, who think that the drug is not a problem for them, but who are having these other issues to try to think about what's going on in their lives that might drive that. Well, I, you know, insomnia is a huge problem for many, many veterans. Sure. Whether connected to PTSD or not, just plain old insomnia affects a huge percentage of Americans everywhere. And so I've heard the argument many times is, no, it helps me to relax and fall asleep. And the same can be said of alcohol, although we do know now that it generally will give you restive sleep. You'll wake up yes. two, three hours later. So you have about a minute and a half. How would you address that with regard to insomnia? I mean, in some ways, it's a little bit like anxiety, right? You can use cannabis as you can use alcohol to, to, to you know, to put yourself down. Um, in the long run, it's not a good idea. In the long run, as you say, your sleep patterns are disrupted and you probably ultimately wind up with rebound insomnia. So, so I think using this drug to treat psychiatric conditions, even mm -hmm. mild ones, is a mistake. I think people, people should be clear about why they're smoking. They're smoking most of the time to get high. And again, that's like we're adults. If you're serving your country, if you put your life on the line, you have every right to make that decision for yourself. Right. But but be aware of what it is you're choosing to do. That's all I'm saying. Well, and I think that's what this show is about. It's not about judgment. It's not about anything except here's science behind it. Here are some things you might want to look out for. And in, in the end, it is your choice, especially where it has become legal. And so I think that that is just very important for us to be putting out there because it is not completely an innocent replacement, which I think we've come to realize because of the media. We're going on our final break. We'll be right back. We're Military Network Radio, and we'll be right back after these short messages. the man who had a fir tree growing in his lung? A 28-year-old male living in central Russia went to the hospital complaining of chest pain. And when doctors x-rayed his chest, they found what appeared to be a tumor in one of his lungs. However, upon closer inspection, they were amazed to find this tumor was actually a small fir tree complete with needles. The mopsicle-faced surgeon said he couldn't believe what he was seeing. What's another word for a skeptic? A pyronist. The five-centimeter branch was removed from the patient and kept by the tree surgeon for further examination. Doctors suggest the man might have inhaled a small bud, which then started to grow inside his body. What's the word for the fear of trees? Dendrophobia. It's I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words-you-never-heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. Welcome back to Military Network Radio, serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Together, we make a difference. 
Welcome back. We're continuing our discussion with Alex Berenson about cannabis and the evidence behind some science and some behavioral changes and things you ought to be aware of. It is not a judgmental show whatsoever. This is your choice, but we want you to know both sides of the tale. Let's move to, as you put it earlier in the show, the most controversial part of your book. And I think most people have the Cheech and Chong thing in their mind about this is going to chill you out and let you relax, let you sleep, etc. But is there evidence that ties use short-term or long-term to violence? Uh, unfortunately, there is considerable evidence. And, you know, and this is an interesting issue because I, I think most people are aware that alcohol can cause violence. And, I, you know, right. anybody who's walked into a bar at 9 p.m. and then they've come back at 2 a.m., they understand that alcohol disinhibits people and it makes people, you know, some people get into fights. If you have an argument, maybe it's a fight. If you have a fight, maybe somebody, you know, uh, swings a, a pool cue. It, it escalates things, right? Mm -hmm. And at, at the same time, we know that plenty of people drink alcohol at their, um, uh, you know, at their backyard barbecue. They have a beer or they have a glass of wine at dinner and they don't do anything. So we're able to sort of keep those two thoughts in our mind. Uh, you know, alcohol causes violence for some people, but a lot of people can just use it. So with cannabis, okay. it's, it looks like it's the same thing. Plenty of people can use and they just get stoned and sit around and don't do much. But there are people, possibly because they get paranoid, possibly because marijuana does, you know, is an intoxicant, who are going to become violent. The numbers show that, that people who use cannabis are about as likely and in some cases more likely to become violent uh, and then people who are using alcohol, believe it or not. And those are these are studies based on they look at people who used in high school were they likely to become uh, domestic abusers. They look at people who, uh, you know, were literally partying and using various drugs and who was most likely to get into a fight. They look in some cases at uh, at actual at homicides, believe it or not. And so there's considerable evidence when you look on a population basis that a lot of people who use wind up becoming violent, um, which which I think surprises almost everyone. Mm -hmm. I, I agree with you, because until I read your book, I didn't realize how much science was tied to. I mean, this book is based on science and evidence. It is not your opinion in any way. In fact, I would love you to tell the quick story of, of how you became interested in writing this book at all. Sure. So my wife, uh, is a forensic psychiatrist, meaning she deals with the criminally mentally ill. And she was talking about patients that she'd seen. And she, you know, she would tell me, well, this guy was smoking pot when he, when he, you know, in some cases literally cut his mother's head off or, or this person was mm. smoking for years and became, you know, uh, a schizophrenic and tried to burn down his house. And I would say, I said to her, you know, this is ridiculous. You know, this is reefer madness. And she said, you know, my, she's very smart. She trained at, you know, very fancy institutions. And she said, why don't you go look at the studies? And, you know, I'm, I'm man, I, there I am mansplaining to her. And she says to me, go look at the studies. And so I did. And I was shocked at the strength of the evidence that both mm -hmm. that cannabis can cause psychosis and that psychosis can cause violence. And one thing I want to be clear on, and this, this actually is important, and I don't mean to scare anybody, but you should know this, okay? The way... When people are paranoid and psychotic, it's not like the kind of violence that alcohol causes, right? So alcohol, two people are in a bar fight. They're swinging at each other. Somebody picks up a chair and bashes it over somebody's head, right? You can imagine mm -hmm. that. that you mm -hmm. can, so with psychosis, the person might just be sitting around stewing, 
you know, possibly talking to himself, possibly just, you know, sitting in a corner, not saying much, but he is getting, he's having terrible thoughts. He's terribly frightened. You know, this, uh, my, my neighbors want to kill me. The police are after me. Uh, terrible, terrible, intrusive, scary thoughts. And sometimes mm-hmm. those people snap. And, you know, I don't think you need to necessarily be an expert and have read all the studies. If you're, well, the way I always describe it is if I'm on the subway platform and I see some guy who's talking to himself, who's disheveled, I'm going to step away from that person because right. I know that person might be dead. I'm not saying he's going to do anything, but I know there's a risk. And that's what psychosis-related violence looks like. So, so when people are dealing with people who are smoking a lot and who seem to be behaving oddly, you know, whether it's family members or friends, you really do need to be aware that, there's, that, that this risk is real. Well, and I think you're bringing up the fact that I'm not sure family members are connecting the thoughts with cannabis. Because in the case of veterans, they're often on multiple medications. And so I, I think there's probably very little studied, maybe you can correct me on that, about cannabis with all the medications that are being taken. And then you don't connect it. You, you connect it or blame it on one of the other drugs that is being given. And you may not even mention it to the physicians because it's probably not prescribed in your area. VA does not you know, prescribe or even talk about it in states that are not legal. And so I don't know that the connection can be made, but it's good for our listeners to know, vets and family members alike, that you may want to consider that, you know how they say now, what drugs are you taking and what supplements? Because supplements (laughs) also have an important fact. I mean, I would consider this, you know, in general terms as, okay, this becomes a supplement to their care, but if the doctors don't know about it, you know, cannabis use disorder and anything like that is not even going to be considered in the treatment. And you'll end up in the psych ward and they won't know why. I would say if you're using cannabis on a regular basis and and you're having any symptoms at all, you should be talking to your doctor about it. And, and you know, your doctor's not going to judge you about this. It, you know, he, he or she may have advice for you, but that's what doctors do. They, you know, they hear they hear from their patients and they try to they try to give them advice. And, uh, you know, I, I, I certainly think, by the way, if you're using stimulants, if you're prescribed Adderall or stuff for ADD or ADHD, if you're using benzos, all those benzos and stimulants can interact with cannabis in, in ways that are not good. And so you definitely want to be talking to your doctor about that. Except that in the VA, that can make you lose benefits, get you arrested. It, it can have some very severe effects and so I know many vets who will not ever mention this because it's not legal in their state or they've gone, even if it is legal in their state, you can't use or uh, dispense on VA property. Uh, it's still considered federal property. So it's right. really complicated in the it's military. Complicated. Yeah, it's very complicated. And so it's not so simple. But I, I appreciate you saying that about uh, ADD and stimulants and benzos because many, many vets are on those medications, seemingly safe meds that have been used for years and years, but it's often the interactions. Uh, You wouldn't drink with all your meds, and it sounds to me like in many cases, smoking or eating uh, THC-laced products 
also may have that same interactive component. And it's just something to be aware of because I think we often don't connect cannabis use in the way that we're talking about it today, from violence to disabled conditions to psychosis. And again, I think we've all been sort of complacent about, oh, this goes way back to Woodstock and you know, those people are fine today. They have wonderful children, et cetera. <laughs> right. They were taking I, two hits on a, on a, you know, on a, on a very low that 1% THC. THC. That's right. Right. Of course. They're and fine. I, I think you also put in the book, I read this morning, I was finishing it up that if you t- are smoking in your teens, it can actually cause what we call teratogenic effects, birth defects in your children or propensities to certain conditions. So it's really not all that innocuous, frankly, nothing taken in excess is innocuous in our bodies. I read, I read stories, you know, the Washington post had a story from some, from somebody who said, you know, I, I'm, I parent better when I smoke. Really? Would you run that story? Washington post. If it said, I parent better when I drink, it, please, <laughs> like, I, I, it is crazy the way, you know, supposedly very smart media people uh, look at this drug. It's very strange to me. I don't get it. I don't either, but I, I don't know that I've seen it all put in one place to read so completely as I have. So I, I will be posting the link to your book, Anywhere Fine Books Are Sold, um, in our show notes, because it's really an interesting read from a story standpoint. You see the history. You see how innocuous it was first perceived. You also now know from listening to Alex how strong it is these days and that the bajillion strains that are available can give you mm, a chill effect or a a really non-chill effect. So talk to me about anything else that we may need to talk about. I think one thing that was really interesting to me was that, um, (laughs) that if you look at rising marijuana use, so U.S. and Canada have been having increasing marijuana use, but they also have an opioid epidemic. Britain has a falling marijuana use and no epidemic. So that statement alone gives an interesting causal propensity. So, so, so I would just, I I guess, you know, I know uh, you've given me a ton of time and I know we're sort of coming to the end end of the interview, but I'd say two more things. One is I'm not a prohibitionist, okay? People are going right. to use this drug, okay? 40 million Americans smoked cannabis in 2017 or right. used it. We're not going to put them all in jail, okay? The question is, do we want a legalized uh, uh, system where companies can advertise this and play down the risks and, you know, have it available 24 hours a day at dispensaries and, and you know, a push for that? Like, Or do we want a system where, you know what, we acknowledge this drug can be dangerous. And yes, we're not going to put you in jail if you're possessing or using it, but we are not going to allow companies to try to make money off an addictive product again. We, you know, we, we've seen that with tobacco. We see it with alcohol. Right. Maybe we shouldn't add this to the list. So, so I'm not in favor of prohibition, but I think decriminalization is a, is, a, is a reasonable compromise. And that's where the country probably would have moved if not for this incredible pressure from the cannabis lobby. So I, you know, I, I, so I think that that is a really important point. And the other thing, the other big point is sort of related to this is people in the, you know, legalization lobby in the cannabis advocacy lobby say, oh, well, we have to legalize. Well, why do we have to legalize? The rest of the world, aside from Canada, 
doesn't have legalized cannabis, I, Uruguay. But, you know, there, when you look at Europe, when you look at the countries that are most like the United States, they don't have legalized cannabis. So why exactly do we feel that this is a necessity? Let's educate people about the risks. Let's have a reasonable, uh, you know, scheme of regulation where you're not going to jail for this, but we're not going to encourage its use. And, and, let's, and let's be honest with each other that this is not medicine. And I think, I think in 10 or 15 years, we'll have a happier, better society if we do that. Well, I think that's beautifully put, because as I said, this book is not a, a prohibitive book. It's not saying don't use. It's simply educating you on use. It's almost like the, the package inserts in a, a, a drug prescription. Because <laughs> if you read those, you would never use any drug at all. Because right. it will tell you you're going to lose your ears and your eyes and you know, all sorts of you know crazy things. But your book doesn't go into that. It goes into really very it's – it's very anecdotal. It tells a lot of stories, but it is backed by studies and research that are irrefutable. So, Alex, thank you so much for your time today. I will post, as I said, the link to the book in our show notes. And I really appreciate you sharing this information because this is a very discussed topic in the veteran community. Well, Linda, I, I appreciate your having me and I'm pretty accessible, you know, and if people email me, obviously I'm not a doctor, I can't give you medical advice, but I can sort of say, uh, you know, reasonable. If you have questions for me, I'll try to answer them. Um, because I, you know, I feel like I've sort of been put in this position where there's a lot of misinformation out there. And, and the least I can do having written the book is try to answer people. For tuning in today to Military Network Radio. You can find our show at our website, www.toginet.com forward slash military network radio. Also, www.militarynetworkradio.com and in iTunes under Military Network Radio. Join us next week when we bring you another program to enhance your